Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are revisiting a conversation I had with the now Dr. Gussie McCracken back in 2019. I want to give a shout out to my favorite blogger, Charlie Eisman, who recently wrote an article inspired by this conversation. I will put a link to that in the show notes. But the reason it inspired him is because Dr. McCracken studies the history of plant-insect interactions using the fossil record. Obviously, when you walk around any natural place today, you will see plenty of evidence of insects, even if you don't see the insects themselves. And those come in the form of bite marks, galls, and stuff like that. But Dr. McCracken takes it a step further and looks at mite domatia in the fossil record. Did you know that many flowering plants today produce tiny homes in their leaves that are specifically geared to house mites? Why they do this is fascinating, but it's amazing to think how long this relationship has been going on. And who better to talk about that than Dr. McCracken? But before I get to that, I just want to say that if you are enjoying podcasts like this, I couldn't be doing it without support. And there are many great ways to support this show. One of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. There are links over at indefensiveplants.com. Just click on apparel at the top of the screen or follow the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where I post a link for every episode. All of our merch, as I mentioned, is customizable. So there's always going to be a style that works for you. But that's entirely enough out of me. Let's jump back into this conversation. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Gussie McCracken. I hope you enjoy. All right, Gussie McCracken, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about we start off with a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Fantastic. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. My name is Gussie McCracken, and I am a PhD candidate at University of Maryland. And I do research on fossil plant insect associations. Excellent. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today because you study some incredible fossils. But were you always a fossil person? Was that a fossil plant person first? Or did you kind of come into this later on through serendipity or some sort of uh, career change? You know, it was a little bit later on. I've always been really into nature, natural history, ecology, and I've always loved fossils. Like, you know, any little kid tends to love finding fossils. Yeah. But I didn't realize it was something that I could do as a career until I got into college. And from that moment, I knew I wanted to be in paleontology. And really, the interactions between plants and insects were so exciting. And I got to use my ecological theories and kind of take them back into deep time. And so that's, that's what really got me excited about my particular field. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up and put it in that context of using ecological theory, because when you think about finding a fossil surface value it's incredible you're probably the first person or the first time that fossil is even seeing light for you know depending on how old it is sometimes millions and millions of years mm -hmm. and to think that 
these were once living, breathing, functioning organisms that had a world around them. And there must be evidence of interactions and, and like you said, ecological theory in there. Um, when did you really start to put those pieces together? Because even as a fossil person myself, I didn't really think about finding evidence of sort of ecology and interactions until much later on in life. When did you really, what was the, the spark that kind of put that idea into your head? Well, I was working at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and my amazing boss at the time let me look at fossil leaves and try to figure out if we could do a research project together. And I was going through all this literature on fossil leaves, and I read this one article by a man named Dr. Conrad Lavendera, and something in me like sparked. <laughs> it was, you know, seeing these holes and these leaf mines and fossil leaves and what you could actually do with this data, all the inferences that you can make. And it was reading that first paper where I was like, oh, th I this is it. This is what <laughs> I want to do. This is amazing. And now he's actually my co-advisor oh, at wow. the Smithsonian. So so it's worked out really well for me. <laughs> it's It's been great. That's remarkable. And not only is it cool to be able to trace back to one pivotal moment in your trajectory here, you know, this paper that you picked up and started reading, but also then to take all of that influence and then be working with that person. That's that's amazing. That's such a cool trajectory to have. And I'm sure it's just been an explosion for your curious mind to unravel uh, all of this stuff as you go. I mean, it's, it's like seeing it, realizing it and then being like, nope, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I do have to admit, because, you know, science is a journey. Yes. Uh, I I was in the field at one point in college, and there was a, a scientist that I kind of shadowed for a day. I, I helped her with her dig, and she was looking also at uh, insect damage on fossil leaves. And at that point, I was like, do I want to look at vertebrates? Like, hmm. what, you know, what's, what's the most fun? And uh, I just remember thinking, oh, God this is really boring. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, um, you know, it took it took a few years to to sort of get over the, you know, glitz and glam of things with backbones and realize, no, like plants and insects, they're just, they're so remarkable. They're so diverse. And there's so much going on in the fossil record that has yet to be discovered, has yet to be analyzed. I had some aha moments, but I also had some, you know, embarrassing <laughs> moments where I was like, oh, gosh, what are, what are these people doing? Uh, Gussie, I'm so glad you had uh, the wherewithal to admit that to us publicly here, because I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people share. Uh, it, it can be weird until you start to really dive in, right, and, and truly appreciate the depth of a field. You know, it's okay to have those surface value judgment moments, and and I'm sure everyone listening, if they've been outside or or listened to a talk at some point, has felt that way. But like you said, if you just kind of dig below that surface reaction to things and and start to tease apart what people are actually doing, you know, it's it's incredible to think of what's out there uh, that we just don't ever realize with any serious resolution. Exactly. Very true. So okay. Plant-insect interactions, we've hinted at that there is evidence of that in the fossil record. You know, I go outside and I look at the trees and I can see leaf mines. I can see insect chewing marks and, and galls and all of these fun, interesting things. But is there a considerable fossil record that mirrors what I see today? You know, can we go back in time and see all of that evidence sort of playing out? Or is it something that you just have to have a keen eye and a lot of luck to find? Oh, no. In the fossil record, it's one of the 
most common, what we call ichnofossils, trace fossils. And, you know, maybe if you're not looking for it, you don't see it. But on, I would say, about half of all the leaves I look at, they have at least one type of insect damage. And it's really interesting that you can be at different periods of time and see different suites of insect damage. Hmm. Say, you know, you're back in the Permian and you might have piercing and sucking marks. That's when an insect has kind of a long pointy mouth part like a mosquito, but they use it to puncture the leaf and suck out the juices, essentially. Hmm. So we know that there's this now extinct insect called a paleodictyopteran, and we can actually see its puncture marks on leaves and then it goes extinct and we don't see those types of puncture marks in the fossil records obviously um, but it's it's really quite amazing what you can find especially at different periods of time and once the angiosperms evolved once flowering plants evolved the insect damage just gets incredible wow so you really do track these evolutionary trajectories because, you know, for those less familiar with the evolution of life on this planet, plants and insects kind of the first things to conquer land. And so it would then, based on what you just told us, uh, it makes sense that you would see sort of this entire evolutionary arms race or interactive evidence going on throughout the fossil record. And and I'm sure that anyone that's looked at a leaf fossil, whether that's in a museum or if you're lucky enough to find them in your neck of the woods, uh, whether they know it or not, probably has seen evidence of this then. I mean, that's amazing to think of just how long these two tracks of life have been interacting with each other and that we can tease this out of the fossil record. Exactly. And so this sort of trajectory you you were you're mentioning there, you really do kind of see how, like you said, you start with these piercing sucking instruments, and then you could probably track how plants changed and then how insects had to keep up with those changes in order to feed or to utilize them in some form or another, right? Yes, yes. In fact, um, we think that insects originally were detritivores on plants, and then they made that evolutionary leap to herbivory. And so... You know, there is a point in time when we start seeing herbivory and it's, you know, a little older than 400 million years ago. And so it's it's just I mean, we have we have 400 million years of fossil (laughs) leaves to go through and and really, you know, pull out these big picture kind of data sets. That's amazing to think about. But in terms of being able to have the resolution and thinking about the way you even have to prep a fossil to be able to properly study this stuff. Is this field of understanding ichnofossils, these trace fossils of plant-insect interactions, is it relatively recent or is this something that has been studied for some time now? I mean, where are we at with it? I would say it's it's relatively recent. Um, there are a few mentions of insect damage on fossil leaves from publications in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but we really didn't start treating this as a, a field of science until about um, 30 years ago is when it started to really kind of pick up. And and we're still trying to figure out better ways to analyze the data that we do have. And so it's, it's a relatively recent field, and it's becoming more statistically sound all the time. Hmm. That's interesting. And without really getting into the weeds with it there, I mean... It... Is it a matter of, okay, we know these are probably there, we just have to prep the fossils better? Or is it we've seen 
these marks, these signatures on these fossils, and now we just have to better quantify and, and sort of classify them? Or is it kind of just a mixture of everything? We're just slowly chipping away at this whole field uh, one bit at a time, and it's just starting to get to the point where, you know, we can start to make some serious conclusions on it. You know, I think it's the latter. I think we are trying to figure out what we're actually seeing. When we see something like a hole that was chewed into a leaf by an insect, you know, we have to sit down and think, okay, we know this insect had mandibles, but that's probably all you can say about it. And so what is this really telling us? How else can we quantify it? So maybe we look at something like how much of the surface area of an entire flora has been removed by insects. Hmm. And that could give us intensity of herbivory. And when the climate changes through time, maybe carbon dioxide rises, we actually see that insect herbivory increases. Hmm. And so we're really, we're really trying to take these pretty unassuming damages on leaves and then figure out how we can analyze them better, what, what they can tell us about the world that we live in and what the world looked like in the past. Wow, fascinating detective story. But in thinking about all of what you just outlined there and the way you have to approach these different fossils and analyses, what amazes me always about paleontologists is just how familiar, you know, you get into this field to look at stuff that's dead or the remains of things, but how familiar you have to be with extant life. And I'm assuming that if you're trying to understand plant-insect interactions in the fossil record, you have to have a good eye for them as they exist today, right? Because a lot of this is making comparisons to try and figure out, okay, this is what uh, this chewing mouth part does, and this is what this sucking mouth part does, and this is how these galls look. You know, is 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 this education of yours in terms of the paleo record also matched in terms of how much you have to pay attention to what's going on currently with with life on this planet? Yes, exactly. So I have to know my insects pretty well and know what modern damage types occur hmm. in order to make sense of what we see in the past. And you know, insects you know, they do have extinction events and radiation events through geologic time, but you were transported back 100 million years ago, and you were looking at the insects flying around, you'd, you'd recognize things that were alive back then, hmm. because they'd probably look similar to what we see today. And so one of the things that we really love to do in my field is look at leaf mines. So a leaf mine is when an insect lays an egg into the tissue of the leaf, the egg hatches, the larva then eats its way through the center of the leaf, and oftentimes the pattern of these leaf mines is really specific to a certain clade of insects. And so there are leaf mines in the fossil record that we look at the pattern of this mine. It's usually something very sinuous, like a thread kind of weaving its way through the leaf. And we can say, oh, this is a specific type of moth that we know mines, say, birches today. Wow. Um, and so we, we really love looking at leaf mines because sometimes you can say, oh, I have this one leaf mine and I know it's this genus of leaf mining fly hmm. or moth or whatever it is. And it might be the first record of that particular genus in the fossil record. So just the trace that it makes, we can identify it to the insect. This actually happened with leafcutter bees. People in our field found evidence for leafcutter bees, the distinct kind of moon shape hole that they took off the side of a leaf. Yeah. And with that, we knew that they had to have been around tens of millions of years earlier than any fossils yeah. that we might have found of them. 
That's incredible. So, so much of this really acts as almost like a dating period to say, okay, at the very least, these were present at this period of time. And that's, again, all from these traces and patterns that are left behind. So, yeah, I mean, just underscoring the importance of understanding leaf mines today or any of that. It's, it's, that's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we, I love it. I love it. It's great. Yeah. So, okay, this is a huge field uh, based on the little you just introduced us to. How did you start chipping out your niche here? I mean, where where did you start to look at specializing in something or did you decide to specialize on something? I mean, we can get into the paper that has recently been published here, but how did you find yourself working on the sector that you are working on? Well, it really came down to the geologic time period that I'm interested in. I love working in the late Cretaceous. And so uh, my research is based right now around about 75 million years ago. And this is a time period where the dinosaurs were still alive. But what I love about the late Cretaceous is actually that flowering plants had fairly recently evolved. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of when flowering plants (laughs) first evolved. That is is a dark, dark hole to go down. um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we know that there are some angiosperm pollen grains from about 140 million years ago. And then from there, we start finding herbaceous and then eventually woody plants. And so, you know, working in the late Cretaceous, working during the time of dinosaurs, these new ecosystems that are forming and rising, becoming more and more dominated by flowering plants. It's just, it's a really interesting time period to try to envision. And that's that's also what I love about paleontology. It's a lot of looking at the fossils, looking at your data, but then also getting to envision what the world looked like in the past. It's it's just, it's a wonderful profession. It's really fun. Wow. Yeah. And it is remarkable to put it into that context of sort of ecosystem change. You know, everyone can relate to loving dinosaurs on some level, or at least being fascinated by the idea of them. And we all know that this big event happened, likely an asteroid made them go extinct. But to think about the, especially the getting towards the end of the Cretaceous, the the turnover, the change that was happening unbeknownst to the organisms, you really were getting these major ecosystems starting to enter into what we would consider a new chapter or a new epic, right? And, And so that really is a fascinating time to be looking around going, what were plants and insects doing? You know, these players that have been here and were there for for many, many millions of years, but in a big transitional period, you know, so to speak, if you can call millions of years transitional, but yeah, from an ecosystem level, fascinating point in time to be poking around in the the fossil record. Indeed. Yep. Okay. So we know you have a time period in which you were really interested in and, and really a good set of reasons as to why you would be looking there, but what in particular do you go looking for? Do you have any plant, insect, or arthropod interaction in mind, or did you go looking for specific ones? No, I I go looking for them all. Um, <laughs> what we do, we go out into the field, and every plant fossil that is identifiable will keep that. And so I look at every plant from conifers and flowering plants to ferns. We look at terrestrial and aquatic species, and we just want to know What's the diversity of plants and what's the diversity of insect damage types? And then that kind of gives us an idea of how these two major clades of organisms were interacting in deep time. 
And, you know, sometimes we get these fossil sites that are incredibly diverse in plants, and maybe we just see one kind of damage type on most of them. Or sometimes we see the opposite. We'll have a few really abundant plants, and they'll have just totally wacky kinds of insect damage. Just every new specimen that we pull up has something kind of interesting or or novel about it. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at everything and I'm trying to just figure out what the past looked like. Wow. That is exciting, but I can un- also understand where that might be a little intimidating depending on how rich and everything you just described there. Are you looking in a specific part of the world or formation that really lets you uh, hit this time period, at least in terms of uh, this sort of broad spectrum detective work you're, you're going for? Yes. Um, so I'm looking at the Western, what's currently the U.S. And, and in Mexico. And so 75 million years ago, global temperatures were higher and sea levels were higher. And what actually happened was that the, the sea level was so high that it flooded the center of North America, essentially creating these subcontinents. Mm. And so I'm looking at close to near shoreline on the eastern shore of this subcontinent called Laramidia that stretched from current day Alaska down into Mexico. And so I'm looking at fossil formations in Coahuila in Mexico, and I'm looking at the Kuiperowitz formation in Utah, and also I I look at the Fruitland Kirtland formation in New Mexico. So sort of western shoreline fossil floras. That's a really cool stretch of uh, shoreline, I'm sure. And in terms of what you're seeing, it's understandable then why you would get different types of preservation and different uh, pieces of evidence there. But the reason we are talking today is you found something really cool in a paper you recently published called Late Cretaceous Dimatia, Reveal the Antiquity of Plant Mutualisms in Flowering Plants. Uh, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I well, I I made this interesting discovery one day. I've been I'd been looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of <laughs> plant <laughs> specimens, fossil plant specimens, and looking for you know the holes, the leaf mines, the galls, things of that nature. And I found these two holes in the vein of this leaf. And it struck me as kind of odd mm. because most of the time insects will avoid leaf veins. I mean, they're they're tough and they're not, you know, as nutritious as the nice, soft, yummy lamina of the leaf. Sure. And so I thought about it for a while. I kind of mulled these over and I came back to them and I realized this is not an antagonistic interaction. This is this is a mutualism. Ooh. They're domatia. And so domatia are structures produced by a plant to house arthropods. And if you're familiar with domatia, you probably have seen Myrmeca domatia, the domatia for ants. Yeah. And those are things like the swollen thorns of the acacia tree. And the ants will kind of protect the tree from herbivores in exchange for housing and, and sometimes like a, a food treat like nectar. But Myrmecha are not as common as acarodomatia, and acarodomatia are mite houses in the axles of veins where the veins kind of converge, that V shape. And uh, they're incredibly common. They're found on over 2,000 species of angiosperms today. 
And mostly woody flowering plants, woody angiosperms, have a keratomasia. And this covers 80 families of angiosperms, which is about 28% of all the dicot families that we know of. And I think this number will just continue to increase. I think we'll find way over 2,000 species of plants that have a keratomasia because they're super tiny and they're often overlooked, but they turn out to be really important. Wow. Okay. Let's back up to the first part of this. You said mite houses. Why the heck would a plant want mites? You know, when gardeners especially think of mites, we think of spider mites doing bad things to plants. Now, obviously, there are countless numbers of mites out there. We're probably going to continue to discover new ones all the time. But you mentioned this is a mutualism. What is going on between plants and mites that these plants would even want to hang out with them in the first place? We'll start there and then we'll unpack the rest of what you just told us. (laughs) Okay, good question. So this mutualism between plants and mites functions as a tritrophic interaction, meaning it goes through three different trophic levels. So the plant produces a pit or a pouch or a pocket or a tuft of hairs that the mite lives in. And this helps the mite escape from other predators. It helps the mite avoid desiccation, especially during periods of time, like, you know, say when they first hatched or even in the egg. Um, So they're being protected by the plant. And these mites are either predaceous or they are fungivorous. So they're either eating other mites or they're eating fungus, depending on what species they are. Hmm. And so the mites will protect the plant from things that will destroy its leaves, things like those awful little spider mites (laughs) that gardeners hate. And so it functions on three different trophic levels, the plant and the beneficial mite and then either the herbivorous mite that's attacking the plant or fungus that's attacking the plant. Jeez, so classic mutualism. We have home in exchange for sort of cleanup crew bodyguard status. Uh, Wow, okay. Uh, So, yeah, we need a whole podcast to explore the world of mite uh, livelihoods, but geez, this is really cool that these plants go out of their way to create homes to house these beneficial arthropods, but... Uh, From what you also told us, it sounds like this is super widespread and common, despite the fact that I don't know too many people bringing this up in conversation about beneficial bugs in the garden. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know much about this mutualism before I made this discovery. And now I I can't walk down a street without pulling a branch towards me and flipping over the leaves and looking for these little structures. I think that these structures are so kind of tiny and unassuming that we just don't pay attention. We don't look for them. But this might be the third most common plant-animal mutualism uh, after pollination and after seed dispersal. And so it's super common and it's really important. One of the things that I think is really exciting about Echeridomatia are that they're found on crops that you and I both love, notably coffee. Uh, The coffee plant has Echeridomatia and grapes, wine grapes Mm. have Echeridomatia. And so two of my favorite things (laughs) are involved in this mutualism. Wow. Talk about motivation to get up and go into work every day. (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. So, I mean, you know, I'm looking at fossil keratomasia. We're thinking about the evolution of these structures. 
But we can also use this body of knowledge that we have to maybe find better ways to promote mites in our agro ecosystems. So I think it's this kind of relatively untapped field that we need to do more research into because I definitely ran into roadblocks. I'd want to know things about Acaridomatia and no one's done the research on it yet. So this is my call out. Go study Acaridomatia. Go to your gardens and flip over leaves and look for them. Uh, yeah, uh, that's putting it mildly. Holy cow. And this is such a prime example of you never know what's going to come from any form of scientific inquiry. I mean, who knew that digging for plant fossils in Western North America could lead you down this road to a better, more complete understanding of something that is not only vitally important just ecologically, but can have major implications for farming and all these other uh, avenues of our lives. I mean, here, this is the web that is scientific inquiry, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, our study was exciting, because obviously, we, we put in another, like, little point of knowledge into this web of what we know about Acaridomatia. And we were able to kind of pinpoint when it might have evolved. So we know that Acaridomatia evolved convergently, meaning they probably evolved multiple times throughout the history of angiosperms. And so it makes it really hard to track maybe when these things first evolved. And so now we have a a minimum age of 75 million years for when they could have evolved. And just based on knowing when angiosperms first appear in the fossil record and when we find the first evidence of woody angiosperms around, say, 100 million years ago, um, we can sort of start to narrow down when they might have first, you know, arose in angiosperms. So, yeah, that, that was my study. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's incredible to think that, like you mentioned, this might be the third most common form of uh, plant-arthropod interaction out there, especially from a mutualism standpoint. But the fact that it's convergent, right? So a lot of different lineages independently arose on this strategy means it's a, it's a winning mutualism that definitely underscores the importance in the ecosystem. But just from a fossil perspective, and you mentioned how small these things are, you know, most of the time when I've seen real world images, in fact, you've included a, a couple really nice illustrations of this in the paper, they're pointing at them with the head of a pin. I mean, these truly are very tiny. So how did you even find these? And the, you mentioned you saw these little circles or divots in the, in a fossil. I mean, you must really have to be looking close. Obviously, I'm I'm probably downplaying the the intricacies of what it takes to be a paleobotanist like yourself, but that that must have taken some serious combing over of a fossil to even recognize it and then find it again and then be like, okay, there's something to this, right? Exactly. You know, I'm sitting at my microscope most days. I'm looking at these fossil leaves for things even as small as pinpricks. Um, like the piercing and sucking I had talked about earlier. And so, you know, I was bound to find a keratomatia at some point. You know, they are extremely common. And, you know, people thought they might be back in the fossil record as far as the Cretaceous. But it takes a close eye and it takes an interesting light setup. Like I have to use really low angle light and that sort of casts shadows and makes structures and traces on the leaf surface kind of pop out at you. 
And so it, it takes a trained eye, it takes a close eye, but I think anybody can do it. If you can look at a leaf and find the insect damage on a live leaf, you can look at a fossil hmm. leaf as well. Fair enough. But still, I mean, kudos to your resolution and your your patience, I guess, would be even a better word for it in terms of being able to come <laughs> over these. But that's the level of forensic investigation that always just floors me when it comes to paleontology is just the level of detail that your eyes are trained to see and, and the way you're thinking about these things. It's inspiring, really, as, as just from not only just a scientific perspective, but just from a an appreciation of biological form perspective. I mean, hats off. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you very much. So you're looking at these things, you know, when you started to put together what they were, obviously, that means hitting the literature, trying to figure out what they look like today and the diversity of lineages that you're finding. And I mean, what were the early days of, of trying to piece this this puzzle together, these findings? You know, were you finding other forms of them in different fossils? You were probably finding them on other leaves, I'm assuming. But, you know, how did you really start going about picking apart where and what and how all of this was happening? Well, my first step was to go to the literature. Um, I had read a paper years before about acaridomatia in 49 million year old leaves from Australia. It was actually a, a science paper in Science Magazine, and it, it kind of caught my attention and you know caught my imagination. And so I kind of packed it away in the back of my brain. But I pulled that one back out again, reread it, and thought, oh, mine is much older. And I'm looking at all of the papers that cited the science paper. And, you know, there were other acaridomatia discoveries in the fossil record, but they were all younger and younger and younger. And so I ended up totaling about eight other studies that found acaridomatia. And most of them were from Australia and, and New Zealand. And from there, I just started to sort of learn more about the mutualism, you know, wade through dozens and dozens of papers, most of them actually agricultural papers about mm. acaridomation, coffee and things like that. So it was it was unlike any study that I had really undertaken before, because it was mostly just a literature search. It was what do we know? What do we still not know? How did these things evolve? Um, what are the big questions that we still have left? So it was it was mostly just reading. Right on. Were you intimidated at any point, though, just going like, OK, we're adding a huge chapter to this piece or this puzzle here? Uh, you know, at any point where you're just like, whoo, I have found something big. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, anytime you kind of wade into a new field, for me, it was thinking about mites. I really didn't ever spend much time thinking about mites. And and so I was a little worried that I might not get all the details mm. correct and that maybe a mite ecologist somewhere halfway around the world would tell me that I did a terrible job. But, yeah. you know, I think it just, you know, you have to be really careful. You have to make sure that you have all the literature um, in your paper and make sure it's cited. And, and by the end of it, I, I felt pretty confident about submitting the paper to biology letters. And we had great reviewers. One of them was even a, a mite expert. And oh. they said that it was, you know, good to go. So I trusted that. And so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, science isn't perfect. So, sure, sure. so I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone's like, oh, you, you know, you got this general idea right, but your details were a little off. 
Um, yeah. But it, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. So sure, and that's science, right? I mean, you have to expect mm-hmm. that not every piece is going to fall into place, and you take a shot and you do it tentatively. And I think you've really put together a fascinating story here. But the most interesting thing to me is this time period. Again, you're seeing the rise of angiosperms. We know they were on the scene, but they're by no means uh, completely outpaced gymnosperm or, or non-angiosperm flora at this point. Yet, uh, from all records that I've been able to assess uh, based on the stuff you've sent me and the little bit of homework I've done, these acarodomatia are really only occurring on angiosperms as far as we can tell, right? This is, this is truly something the flowering plants have evolved as best as we can tell. Exactly. They're only found on angiosperms, uh, mostly dicots and woody dicots. So even we can narrow it down within the angiosperms. And um, I think part of it has to do with the structure of angiosperm leaves. Mm. A lot of them have this network of veins. So if you think of something like a a monocot, like a palm tree, you have very straight parallel veins Mm. in the leaves. And acaridomatia really need that that axle. They need that V-shape in the leaf. That's where the tuft of hair is or the pouch is. And so I think that's part of why they're only found on angiosperms. There are other non-angiosperms that have a network of veins. There's a a genus called Needham, which looks, it's not an angiosperm. It looks like an angiosperm with that netted uh, vein fabric. And that, I mean, as as far as I know, the people I've talked to, um, the Needham that I've seen, it hasn't evolved Acaridomatia. Same thing with ferns. A lot of ferns have that nice network of veins, and they have not evolved acaridomatia either. So I think it's part the structure, and then who knows why why other plant clades haven't evolved this mutualism. And it's not for a lack of time. Uh, sure, you know, mites mites have been around for around four hundred million years, and you know, same with plants. And so there's been a lot of time to develop this mutualism, but it just, we don't know why it just sort of sprung up with angiosperms. I think that's something that we can kind of think about and maybe collect more data on for the future. Yeah, that's super fun to think about. And again, another avenue of inquiry that just finding these fossils has opened up is, yeah, what is it about the structure or physics of just building an angiosperm versus a monocot versus, you know, a gymnosperm? And then, you know, what are the genetic toolkits required to even go down that pathway? I mean, obviously, this is all up in the air and and plenty of of studies to come kind of thing. But yeah, just the evolutionary perspective that you gain from asking these questions based on what you're finding is is so ripe for discovery. Yeah. And even even more broadly, why are angiosperms so good at developing these animal mutualisms. I mean, we know that pollination and seed dispersal have been around for a very long time since the Permian, close to, let's say, 280 million years ago, um, maybe even a little a little further back in time. Um, but really, pollination and seed dispersal took off under angiosperms, and it kind of helped both insects and plants diversify. It's probably one of the reasons why angiosperms are so dominant on the landscape today. And so what is it about angiosperms that has promoted, you know, these big fruits for seed dispersal and these incredible floral displays for pollination? 
and then acaridomatia as well. So we ended our, our paper by asking, could acaridomatia have also contributed to the rise in radiation of angiosperms in the hmm. in the Cretaceous? And I mean, I, I think it, it played a part, you know, how can we know how big of a part? But I think it I think it was involved in this unprecedented rise of flowering plants. For sure. I mean, I keep going back to this fact, at least as we understand it, this is probably the third most common form of mutualism between plants and arthropods. I mean, that alone should talk about the importance of this. And it is really interesting to think about evolution from not just a sole species perspective, but also, again, the ecology of it. The The niche of a species is not an address. It's not a place in time. It's it's everything that comes together. And yeah, what was it about those early days that made insects and arthropods and plant these these angiosperms interact? And then again, did they really set both of their lineages off onto this trajectory that led us to where we are today? I mean, ah, oh, geez, I, I love there was a line in one of your emails that said, you know, these sometimes these tiny unassuming structures can tell such big stories and it doesn't get much bigger than the evolution of life on this planet. Exactly. Yes. So you're looking at all of these leaves. We've we've narrowed down the fact that it's definitely angiosperms, often woody angiosperms. I mean, do you get to the resolution of, you know, clades of plants? I mean, were you seeing evidence that, okay, these groups are doing it more than others? Or if you can't identify them, is there sort of similarities? Uh, or are we just not there yet with the, the, the types of questions and, and time that is needed to truly suss this out? I mean, what kind of patterns... What kind of identities can you narrow down or, or say at all about the, the fossils you've been working with? Um, I don't think we can say much, at least for the Acaridomatia, as far as what species of plants that we're looking at. Hmm. Um, so it was rather heartbreaking for me. The species of plant that we found the Acaridomatia on was a woody plant. It was a woody angiosperm, but that's sort of all we could tell. It mm. was a very large leaf, and so it had actually been kind of physically broken and pulled apart prior to becoming a fossil as it was you know, being deposited in the stream bed. And we didn't really, I mean, we just got chunks of it, and so we couldn't actually identify it. Yeah, it is. It's again, it makes you think a lot about the odds of fossilization and what it means to even find a fossil. And yeah, oftentimes you're working with just fragmentary little bits and pieces. And just the fact that you found this level of detail is amazing enough. And yeah, I mean, if this is something that's convergently ev evolved over time in different lineages, sure, ID would be fun, but okay, maybe not the most important thing to ask here. But the other avenue here that, that's curious to me, at least, is you mentioned earlier on in our discussion that this was sort of coastal habitats, and I'm just kind of waxing poetic and thinking out loud here, is, is you know, what about that ecosystem, right? This coastal community maybe lended to this, or the preservation environment that might have lended to this. I mean, how much of it lies in the fact that you had really fine grain resolution on these fossils versus something that's a little, you know, more coarse, and you just get an outline or something here. There's so many different ways to think about what you're seeing, where you're seeing it, and why it came to be that you're even able to see it in the first place. Exactly. So depositional environment plays a big role in in what we're seeing and how much detail we can get. Um, the Kaiperowitz formation in Utah is really interesting. It's sort of a, a swamp area, big meandering river channels. There's ponds, extensive ponding. And so we like to think of it as 
similar to, say, the Louisiana bayous of today. And, mm. and so, you know, we look at all these different depositional environments and we say, oh, well, now we know that this species of plant grows along river channels and this other species lives in ponds, for example. So depositional environment does play a big role. And um, the finer grain, the sediment, the more detail you can get. So if this leaf had dropped into a fast moving river, it would have been torn up even more. And it might have been in a sandstone, which doesn't lend itself to seeing detail uh, because the grains are just big and they they sort of distort the features of the leaf. And so the fact that we actually have this leaf preserved in a lower energy environment, um, fine grain, mudstone, we can see even some of the tiniest veins of the leaf mm. surface. And we can see these holes and they don't just look like you know, smudges or chips, we can actually tell it was a structure of belief. Yeah, that's another good point that I hadn't even thought of is just, are you looking at what you think you're looking at? And so again, this resolution really helps you say like, no, that's, that's a domation, not just some weird artifact of the way it was preserved or some other factor that, you know, led it to where it is today. Exactly. Hmm. And thinking about you know, I have found a lot of leaf fossils in my day. I grew up in, uh, for some time in northeastern Pennsylvania, and, and, you know, you could walk on entire quarry bottoms that were nothing but leaf fossils. And that goes uh, for a lot of different places. And we think about museums, and what we see is only the tip of the iceberg on display. There's drawers and entire warehouses full of old fossils and stuff. So this, to me, screams for the fact that, okay, now we know you found them here, we know they're a thing. I would assume there's probably hundreds and thousands of potential fossils to pour over in museum collections around the world, let alone just in one uh, museum basement. <laughs> yes, yes. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of fossil leaves that we can look at at different time periods to you know, search for these structures to continue to do this research. And in fact, you know, I, I've given talks at academic conferences on these Acaridomatia, and I get a lot of scientists saying, oh my gosh, like, I haven't looked, but hmm. I'm going to go fly home in two days, and I'm going to pull drawers and look for these structures in my own leaves. And so I think just the fact that museums store these beautiful specimens in perpetuity, you know, it's really important to keep supporting museums and to see the value of these collections because you can go back into historic collections or collections, you know, that you collected yesterday and you can look for new things. You can analyze them differently. It's similar with the genetic revolution. These incredible specimens that were collected 100 years ago, maybe we can analyze the genomes of these organisms and see how they've changed through time or, or hmm. you know, any number of questions. And so we can similarly use these fossil floras to search for new things all the time and to look for insect damage, to look for acaridomatia, to collect new ecological data. And so you never know what the future holds for museum research. For sure. And now that this paper is published and people can access it and read it and, and understand that you have really set that pinpoint back in time much farther than it has before. Now we have a time period to aim for. We know which groups of plants and, and what kind of preservation you might find them in. I mean, 
just setting that that new I guess pinpoint in where we are in terms of understanding the way mites and plants interact that in of itself is an amazing new step in our understanding of this whole process because again you set the stage back to an the earliest time we can possibly say at this point but that's not to say that another discovery can set it back a few more million years or something like that right exactly i hope people will look at older and older floras and find examples of these that you know predate my discovery. I, I just hope that we can kind of narrow down the window even more. Yeah, it's very exciting, especially to be you know responsible for one of those forefront uh, discoveries in this this whole process. But you know, this is a big discovery, and like you said, there's so much more to look at, and you could probably spend you know potentially multiple lifetimes pouring over uh, different leaf fossils looking for evidence. You know what most excites you about your future graduation all that stuff aside um, you know what, what's next for you well i'm excited to keep looking at fossil floras and insect damage hopefully for the rest of my career but there's just so much more to discover there's so much to learn you know it would take many lifetimes to even look at one slice of time across the globe and so you know i'd love to continue doing field work and maybe maybe even working in new time periods. So I'm involved in a project with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and we've been looking at how the ecosystem changed after the KT impact, the mass extinction event um, that killed the dinosaurs. And so I'd like to work at the ecosystem recovery angle for that project and looking at the insect damage specifically and yeah, just just new time periods, new places, new field work. That's what I that's what I love. That's awesome. And yeah, uh, we'll be rooting for you on this side. But uh, for anyone that wants to keep track and, and learn more about what you're doing and, and see all of the great discoveries that are definitely going to be made at some point in time, you know, how do you recommend people reach out or find out more about you or just kind of keep track of what you're doing from a scientific perspective? Well, I have a website, gussiemccracken.weebly.com. But um, I think ResearchGate, I have a profile on ResearchGate that I keep fairly up to date. And you can also email me at gussie at umd.edu or use Google Scholar. I'm on there too. Excellent. Well, I will put up links to all of that in the show notes that people can easily find it. But Gussie, thank you so much for opening our minds to this incredible world of, of ecological discovery and deep time and and all of the fun ways that that can have implications for current day life. I mean, this is this is the mark of true science and amazing science. And I'm really happy that you reached out and that we were able to talk today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. This has been a wonderful experience. Well, great. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Cheers. Bye. All right. How cool is that? If you want to see what modern day examples of mite domitia look like, go check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, where you can see Charlie Eisman's recent blog post where he took some incredible photographs of what these look like in current day. But then click on the links for Dr. McCracken's work where you can see what the fossil record of these types of domitia actually look like. It's amazing stuff. And I thank her for taking time out of her schedule to talk with us. And I want to give her a big congratulations because she is now the curator of paleobotany for the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Way to go, Gussie. 
But that is it for this week. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting it. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants and give a little bit each and every month. Or you can click on any of the other links over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast for a multitude of ways of helping keep the show up and running. So until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.